A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, where I try to find some of the best stuff to listen to next. With more than half a million podcasts out there to choose from, each week I'll handpick some of the top ones from around the world. And coming up today, the New York Times series Caliphate shows up the challenges of reporting on Islamic State. I am looking for ISIS's diary. I am looking for their internal correspondence, their receipts, their personal tips with co-workers, some of which end up getting sent to the equivalent of ISIS HR. I'll speak to the journalist at the centre of Caliphate, Rukmini Kalamaki, and the show's producer, Andy Mills, about the importance of audio in today's media landscape. Then, unusual uses for a well-known kitchen appliance. The George Foreman grill has been an amazing success story as a kitchen appliance, but what I think many people don't realize is that immigrants and low-income people have contributed to that popularity. That is, to me, the epitome of the hidden kitchen. Wow. What a wonderful story. I'd never considered it at all. And trying to solve an Australian missing persons case that dates back to the 1980s. Speaking. One breakthrough can crack this cold case and deliver justice over the probable murder of Lynn Dawson 36 years ago. Plus celebrity revelations over a home-cooked dinner. We froze our guinea pigs by accident when we were kids. Very rock and roll. That's all coming up and you can get in touch by email at pods at radionz.co.nz and on Twitter we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. In the two years since it was set up, the New York Times audio units had some pretty big successes. Just look at The Daily, a 20-odd-minute weekday news show where host Michael Barbaro interviews some of the Times' best journalists about the big stories of the day. In no time at all, The Daily's become one of the most popular podcasts on the planet, with 5 million monthly listeners, and annual advertising revenue reported to be worth more than 10 million US dollars. Meanwhile, the 10-part series Caliphate, which is a detailed look at ISIS and how it works, has been another big hit, with some critics already calling it one of the podcasts of the year. A few of you have also been recommending it to me too via email and Twitter. And a bit like the format of The Daily, in Caliphate, a journalist takes centre stage too, with correspondent Rukmini Kalamaki shadowed by producer Andy Mills as they try to establish the credibility of a mysterious potential source. Here's some of it to listen to. Chapter 1, The Reporter. I don't know. How you doing? Good. Hey. 
You got a moment? Yeah, I'm just like, can you give me five? Will you be back there? I'll just, uh, I'll just meet you in that room with your stuff. Hello, hello. Do I need to bring it closer? Hello. Yeah, here we go. <clears throat> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So, Rukmini, mm-hmm. before I started following you around all the time, <laughs> yes. um, I knew that you were a reporter. Mm-hmm. I knew that you talked to terrorists on the internet. Right. I knew that ISIS was your beat. But I don't think I had any idea what that reporting actually, actually looks like. like. Right, right. Yeah. Hey, Hawk. When you hear that, it's outgoing. Outgoing. Like, I didn't know you are going right up to the front lines of the war against ISIS. There's a building that appears to have been airstriked. And as the coalition soldiers are pushing ISIS back, have these buildings been cleared? You are right there, directly behind them. What are you doing right now? I'm trying to get out some trash bags. We're about to go into the building. And you pull out garbage bags. Hang on, stick it here like trash bags that you've brought from home, and you just start picking stuff up. A bunch of computers, hard drives yanked out. Like garbage out of buildings. This is so a school So we basically location. have an ISIS tamper here. Um, so we're in the right place. And when I tell people about that part of your job, mm-hmm. they almost always ask two questions. First, there's a backpack right there, and I really want to search it, but I'm a little scared to put my hand inside it. Isn't that dangerous? It could be booby-trapped, huh? Could be. And I'm always like, yes, like very <laughs> dangerous. There are explosions. That's close. And gunfire. Hey, smoke. You see this? And airstrikes. How many airstrikes have you heard so Three or four. Three or four? Try like ten. And the other question they ask is, how is that worth it? Right. Like, what, what do you say to that? So look, every reporter that covers conflict and war knows that you have to be there. You have to be on the ground if you want to try to understand the story. And as for me, I'm trying to understand ISIS. And one thing I've learned is that if you're able to get to the buildings that they occupied right after they are liberated, and I mean right after. Rukmini, can you describe what you're doing? Well, we're in in a room off the side of a church that ISIS had used as a base. I'm looking at a notebook here. You often can find the documents that they left behind. Look at this one. It's a little diary. It's like day by day. These are not documents that are meant for publication. So look, this is where they slept. This is a prayer mat. And then over there, these are the rockets that they they manufactured. Yeah. Imagine if you walked into my home right now, right? If you walked in right now, you would probably find my Bank of America statement. If you found that, you would find all of my daily transactions. You would know what diet I have. You would know that I have a penchant for buying a certain kind of rice milk. Uh, You would know the stores that I go to shop at. So you might conclude from that that I'm probably middle class. If you walked over to the bookshelf, you would find books in Romanian, in English, and in French. And you could deduce from that that I most likely speak three languages or that members of my family are bilingual or trilingual. If you went upstairs and you went into my bedroom and you found my diary, you would find my most private thoughts. And you're saying yep. you do that. And so to I ISIS. do that. So I am doing that to ISIS and Al Qaeda. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> right? I am looking for 
ISIS's diary. I am looking for their internal correspondence, their receipts, their personal tiffs with co-workers, some of which end up getting sent to the equivalent of ISIS HR. Mm -hmm. um, the things they're struggling with, that they're writing letters back and forth about. And so the documents are generally what you are using yeah. to answer this question, who are we really fighting? Yeah. You, you drove to Syria with, yeah. with your friend from Bremen, yeah. right? I thought to myself, go down there, I live under Sharia. Of course, I'm a journalist, so I also want to talk to them. They said we need people who are willing to give their life, especially in suicide mission. That's incredibly difficult, but I've been able to speak to around two dozen of them, both in prisons in Europe. What did he do before ISIS came here? And in jails in both Syria and Iraq. He worked four months with them as a mechanic. Those interviews have been crucial for me in understanding the general framework of how ISIS works and the motivations that push people to join them. But many of those interviews have also left me frustrated. They tired him and put him, bent him over his chair. Because... And he chopped off his head. The overwhelming pattern is that they'll have witnessed an execution, they'll have witnessed a beheading, they'll have been present when a stoning took place. When you saw those things, did you feel sick to your stomach? Yeah. What was your reaction? I was shaky because yeah, I was shocked. But they never took part in it themselves. It seems to me that many times along the way you said no. Yeah. They weren't getting suspicious of you yeah, at this they point? Were, they, were, they were all looking at me and they were asking me, why are you here then? Over and over this is the story they tell. When they did so, he said, I don't want to work with you anymore. So he, he quits. They were a cook. They were a driver. They were a translator. So, Bashir, do you want to tell me what really happened? Or do you not want to be interviewed at all? They present themselves as having been witnesses to horror, but never having carried out the horror themselves. I've, I've lost interest because he's contradicted himself so many times that I just can't tell that anything he's saying is true. That's usually how it goes. Usually. The story told in Caliphate isn't all played out overseas either. With Islamic State's influence spreading, it can take place closer to home too. So I don't usually scare easily, but in 2015, I get a phone call from the FBI. Are you uh, Mr. Rukmini Kalimaki? Yes, I am. Uh, may I come to see you right now? I can be at your office in the next 20 minutes. And we went into a conference room, not far from here, and um, the agent read a prepared statement. He said, you are the subject of a targeted threat from the Islamic State, and we can't tell you more. That was the first serious threat. But it started to percolate, you know, somewhere, that they were noticing what I was doing. Since then, I've seen how I've become a presence in their online chat rooms. They talk about my reporting, they dissect my tweets, they sometimes insult me, and these insults, if I can, if I can just say so, sometimes are pretty funny. I think they figured out that I'm sensitive about my weight, so they sometimes call me Oink Meanie instead of Rook Meanie. It's Oink Meanie, like pig. Fat Mochi. <laughs> Oink Meanie Fat Mochi. I'm sorry to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, I, I mean, there's something ironic about being fat shamed by ISIS, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, they'll, they'll make jabs about how I've put on a couple of pounds based on my latest, you know, TV appearance. 
But then sometimes what they say is dead serious. So for example, when I was in Mosul a couple of months ago, they started talking about how they were hoping that I would get killed in Mosul, just like the Kurdish journalist who was killed there at the same time uh, in the city. Hmm. Uh, but then let's see, what are the others? Um, Do you have like a folder on your phone where you keep the threats? Is that what I'm looking at here? Yeah, exactly. One of them is a masked man who was holding up a knife that he's pointing towards the camera. And he said, um, under a picture of me, wanted to be kill this crusader woman that refuses to join to Islam, Rukmini Kalimaki. Please join to religion before beheading or truck from our soldiers of Islamic State. Okay, pretty explicit. Um, uh, so, so they created a channel where they're pretending to be me. And then they're pretending to post in this channel as me. And it says, I, I have to confess something here. I started covering ISIS because they are real men. I always fantasize about getting raped by them. That's all my fantasies. This is the sole reason I made multiple trips to Mosul just to get captured by ISIS so that they can uh, fulfill my desires. So I'm used to this stuff now. But back when the FBI first came, it didn't really sink in. It was so unbelievable that honestly, I just... I think I just stored it away somewhere else. And then weeks went by. There was another apparent terror attack in Europe, this time in Germany. And months went by. A series of deadly bombs, at least one packed with nails, killing dozens, injuring hundreds. And in that period of time, I covered attack after attack. Two terrorists stormed the church during morning mass, taking a priest, two nuns, and two churchgoers hostage. And a planned and deliberate attack in suburban Sydney. It starts to just marinate in your consciousness. Yeah. German media reports the attacker shouted Allahu Akbar as he hacked at the passengers. And then about a year later, I was home alone late at night. So I'm home alone. And I'm by myself because at this point in time, my husband was working the overnight at his company. At 12.30, I think, at night, I'm getting ready to go to bed. I'm, I'm actually under the covers uh, and I'm upstairs with my two dogs. And suddenly, my Rhodesian Ridgeback, which is a big dog, starts growling. The hair on his back is straight up. Immediately afterwards, I start hearing somebody ringing the doorbell downstairs. And they're ringing continuously. So it's not like, it's not like knock, knock, and then go away. It's like, bzz, bzz, you know, knock, knock, knock. I'm thinking to myself, what is this? You know, like, like you know, who, who is this? What is this? So I get a hold of my, my husband who assures me that it's not him. At this point, I've turned off the lights in the second floor bedroom because I don't want the people who are outside to see where I am. So the dog is barking, the knocking is going on, and the doorbell is ringing and ringing and ringing. At this point, I'm so scared that, like, my hands are not even working. 911, where is your emergency? Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, I'm sorry to bother you. I don't know if this is an emergency. So the FBI agent who had come to see me had told me that they had alerted the particular police precinct uh, where I lived. He said, if you ever have, you know, any issues, all you have to do is call 911. They have you on a list. We'd rather that you call um, rather than waiting for, you know, for something to happen. My name is Rukmini Kalimaki, and I've had direct threats against me and my family. Uh, Ma'am, where is your emergency? But yes. the operator who picked up must have thought I was crazy. Okay, so you're being, the FBI is making threats against you is what you're saying? No, I saw. Did you see anyone? 
I was afraid to go up. I was afraid to show myself. Like, I just saw the silhouette of a person. And I can't remember exactly what the woman said, but it was something like, ma'am, are you trying to tell me that ISIS is ringing your doorbell? Okay, I'll send an officer over to talk to you. Thank you so much, ma'am. You're welcome. Bye-bye. So she calls me back and she says, ma'am, um, I am calling to tell you that we've investigated and it happens to be um, the, the water department. There's been a water main break on your street. And as a result of this, they're going house to house to tell the neighborhood that your toilet is not going to flush. What do you think the, the moral of that story is? Though? <sighs> What's the moral of that story? Like, why is it that that's the story you chose to tell me when I asked you if you've ever been afraid? I guess... The story illustrates how (laughs) I got ensnared into the very thing that ISIS is trying to do. Because in the end, the, the purpose of these acts of savagery and violence are to terrorize us. Mm. They're trying to scare us, right? They're trying to make themselves into boogeymen and live in our imagination. And that night... They got you. They got me that night. Yeah. Some of chapter one of Caliphate called The Reporter. And that reporter, Rukmini Kalamaki, and the show's producer, Andy Mills, spoke to me about the role of audio storytelling in journalism and why The New York Times first set up a dedicated audio unit about two years ago. The idea was that uh, The New York Times has these amazing stories that it's doing every single day, and more and more people are into podcasts. and. I think there was a part of, uh, of it that's just like very simple where like a lot of other <laughs> podcasts would essentially be building podcast episodes out of reporting that the New York Times had done. And it seemed that there's like a lot of great stories that are actually in our newspaper every day that would be great podcasts, that would be great stories for a person to listen to, but that, that there was just a divide there. And so they, they brought in a bunch of outsiders like myself and we were tasked essentially with just trying to figure out like, what should the New York Times sound like in this moment, especially in history uh, that we're living in in the United States? Like, what is it the New York Times should sound like? And we didn't exactly know what that was going to be. And, and what you hear in Caliphate, um, some of that is, is, is the creation and, and the wisdom that we gained out of creating our kind of main ship podcast, which is The Daily. And in The Daily and in Caliphate, We are trying to tell the great stories of our time that the New York Times reporters are reporting on, but we're also doing this other thing where we're kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit on the reporting process, in part just because it's rather fascinating, and they are kind of detective stories once you get down to it, but also in part because, like, I mean, my soapbox is always that that we're living through a time when, when a lot of people don't trust the media. There's a lot of talk in the U.S. right now about the mainstream media and being careful what kind of uh, narrative they're trying to spin. And one way that you can just show trust is just to show your cards, to show your work, to say like, look, here's what goes into that story that was in the newspaper today. And here's all the work and all the research and all the fact checking that went into us publishing that one sentence, mm-hmm. um, that one fact. Yeah. Uh, and we've, we've kind of just been kind of building on that. We, 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 every single day we try and do that about what's the big story of the day and then with these bigger projects like Caliphate, we kind of say, like, what are the big stories of the year and, and, and dive into that? I'm wondering, Rukmini, how does making a podcast and having Andy there with recording equipment, does that change how you behave or how you can report in the field? 
Interestingly, I don't think it did. Um, I've I've worked with Andy. I've also worked with a couple of TV crews. When you have a camera, that is really disruptive because it's so obvious and people are aware of it and never forget that it's there. Andy, because of his his sweet nature, is already the kind of person that just melds with the surrounding, right? And so it's it just felt like I had a reporting partner. Uh, on this trip. And as somebody who usually goes on these trips alone, it was really wonderful to have somebody to be able to share it with. And he plays a really important role too, I think, in that he he's kind of our surrogate, isn't he, in the field with you? Because a lot of what you're saying, you regard probably as a normal part of your daily working life, but he's the guy exactly. who's on our behalf going, look, what, 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 why are you doing that? What are you doing? That, that's, a, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And there's, there's so many times when, of course, I'm aware that I have to describe things to a lay public, but there were so many times when Andy was like, wait a second, explain this to me. And, and, and I would forget that the thing I'm seeing was actually quite unusual and that it needed to be broken down for people to, to really grasp what was, what was going on. This is a key thing that I've learned in my career is that you don't have to be the smartest person in the room when you're this <laughs> when when you're doing this job you can really like your your ignorance can be uh helpful mm-hmm. if you just admit that you don't know what's going on and 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 um the listener often appreciates it. And this is something that we actually got great feedback on at the daily mm-hmm. and so we leaned into more and more with Caliphate which is that people actually really respond well when they hear the sound of a journalist getting mm-hmm. in over their head a journalist stumbling upon something that is genuinely confusing to them and hearing a journalist say something like, I don't know what to do. Um, it goes back to the thing I was saying. We're like, we, we're living at a time when it's hard to know who to trust. And sometimes you trust the person who will admit what they don't know. This has been actually part of my learning curve as a journalist. When I was younger and just starting out in this profession, you would start to report a story and you would find a bunch of facts that lined up with whatever theory you started to pursue. And then you would have a couple of things, you know, that didn't line up. And when I was, you know, much younger in this profession, long before I joined the New York Times, I thought that the thing that I should do was to essentially ignore those things that that didn't line up with my theory and kind of cherry pick the narrative so that so that it was cohesive. And I've learned as I've come into my own in this profession, that in fact, I think that you signal integrity to your listeners and to your readers by flagging what you don't know and what doesn't fit, what doesn't fit, you know, the the prevalent theory of of whatever it is that you're that you're reporting. And we really leaned into that in Caliphate. It was scary at times. I mean, to basically tell people we're not 100 percent sure that that this guy is telling the truth. Right. But in fact, readers really uh, listeners, I should say responded really positively to that because I think that we were honest with them about what we know and what we don't know. You often have a lot, you know, a, a bunch of things you can confirm. And then there's, especially with ISIS, in, in the case of ISIS, there's an enormous other area where you just can't because of the nature of, of this having happened inside of a war zone where reporters could not go without getting kidnapped and killed. Rukmini Kalamaki and producer Andy Mills from the New York Times. And you can find more information about Caliphate and how to listen to it on our website right now.
Just a sneak peek into something we've got coming up soon, the American audio-producing duo, The Kitchen Sisters. They've made hundreds of sound-rich documentaries over their 30-plus years in the business. Well, I spoke to one of them, Davia Nelson, recently, and that interview is coming up soon. In the meantime, here's a story of theirs that involves a famous heavyweight boxer and the grill he brought to the masses. Message 23 was received at 1.10 p.m. today. I'm Margaret Engel. A woman who works for legal aid was talking to me about how many of her clients get dinner. The people who struggle to even get food on the table because they don't have an official kitchen and who are using George Foreman grills and the like. The George Foreman grill has been an amazing success story as a kitchen appliance, but what I think many people don't realize is that immigrants and low-income people have contributed to that popularity. That is, to me, the epitome of the hidden kitchen. Wow. What a wonderful story. I'd never considered it at all. I'm George Foreman, two-time heavyweight champion of the world, former Olympic champion, and king of the grills. Growing up in Houston, Texas, my whole life was spent trying to get enough to eat. Having seven kids, my mother did, and there just was never enough food for me. I always dreamed about not a car, not a beautiful home, but enough to eat. My name Piggly Wiggly. I've got groceries on my shelf. My name is Jeffrey Newton, Chicago. I'm a great cook. A trait that I had learned from my grandmother, but I just haven't had a kitchen. I'm living in a shelter at this particular time, but I've been homeless all my life. I lived under Wacker Drive, where the expressway goes through, and there's about 30 or 40 refrigerator boxes down there. That's going to be your home. I would get uh, the George Foreman grill. That's the grill that I had for a while under Wacker Drive, me and a fellow by the name of Smokey. So you just get your long extension cord. They got a lot of electrical plugs on the poles down there. And just hook up. We was making hamburgers and grilled cheese sandwiches. Because we used to take an iron and do that too. Press down, you know, your bread and your cheese. My name is Pat Sherman, and I'm the program coordinator of the Walk-In Center here at Glide, San Francisco. When I was in the single room, I could perceive I couldn't cook in my room. Well, legally I couldn't. I'd get me a big bowl, put me some ice in it. And voila, that became my refrigerator. Microwaves, toaster ovens, hidden under the bed or in the closet. The George Foreman grill, that's the newest thing. Doesn't set off the smoke detectors. And since they come in colors, you know, it just looks like you're getting real fancy in your room and decorating. And it looks like you have a nice tabletop to the visible eye. But you know it's your kitchen. It's a special TV offer from the king of the grill, George Foreman. My lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine. I grew up in Houston, Texas, in the Fifth Ward area. Every day at lunch during the summer days, you hear the parents call the kids in. They would just tell me, okay, go home and eat your lunch. And these people knew I had no food at home. And I'd peep through the window at, at the kids eating, and the parents would peel the crust off the bread, and I would sit there and just hope they would just throw it out the window for me. Going to school, you go through the lunch line, 26 cents. I couldn't afford that. And I'd sit at the table, and it was so embarrassing. So what I would do, I'd get a greasy bag, blow it up on the way to school to make it look like there was a sandwich in it. Then I'd get to my classroom and say, boy, I ate my lunch. And I learned to disguise my not having food. 
when you're homeless, you have to find out all these things, you know. It's called trailblazing. You got to blaze the trail, you know. A lot of times uh, we went into the hospitals, it was either to sleep or to use the microwave. You know, going, <laughs> I'm coughing. <laughs> you know, and when they call your name, you don't answer. You got a band around your wrist. So now you can sit there half the night and go to sleep. Or if I'm downtown, I go to one of these office buildings and they got a microwave and I run in there. You know, I mean, I wasn't there to steal anything like that. I just wanted to pop my popcorn. Sometimes I survived on popcorn. I did the crock pot thing and I made it look like a flower pot. When I got ready to use it, I took my flower pot out of it, put my things in, then went to work and came home and had dinner. You make a kitchen for yourself so that you can survive. I try to conceal my lack of things by fighting all the time. Pretty soon I became an expert at fighting. I never did get good at schoolwork. Finally, I became a dropout and I became a mugger. I actually mug people. I think hunger makes you angry. Hello, this is Jackie Gleason talking to you about the Job Corps. I heard about the Job Corps. If you're looking for a second chance to get an education, join the Job Corps. And in 65, I went to Grants Pass, Oregon. I had three meals for the first time in my life. It took me about two months before I realized, hey, they're going to have breakfast every day. And it changed my whole life. I started reading books. I started doing assignments. For a while there, I was selling plates of food to the other homeless people. You know, they had to come up with a little money. They gave us a room at the YMCA over on the west side. I started cooking for everybody, even though we weren't supposed to be cooking up there. I could take uh, food depository food and do wonders with it, you know, canned chicken, canned pork. We had our door wide open. I turned the music on. They know once they hear the music on Jeff's cooking. It wasn't legal at all. The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory eight count, and Foreman is as poised as can be. In 1977, when I left boxing, I realized I didn't have any friends. People weren't pouring into my home anymore. And I noticed if I'd barbecue something, they would come over. Even the guys would go fishing. I wanted them to stay and come back so much, I would always clean the fish, do all the cooking. I found out more satisfying than even winning boxing matches when people would lick their fingers and say my food was good. That grill, I'm just happy that it's helped so many people. Helped me, of course. My brother Roy and I started the George Foreman Youth Center. I have these summer camps so the kids can know to come. They can have a lunch every day. Just had to be there for them. I'll never forget. And I'm pushed and compelled. I mean, there's a food bank. All you got to do is ask George Foreman. If I can find a dime, I want to make sure you get it. I try to keep those little visions alive for myself. Feed them. An unexpected kitchen, the George Foreman Grill from the Kitchen Sisters. We'll have more from them coming up soon. I'm also hoping to get some bubble on the show. In a public park at the crack of dawn, Morgan Kay is out for her daily run. She's wearing a tattered T-shirt, hideous day-glow fanny pack, and a look that says, hey, maybe don't try and talk to me while I'm jogging, okay? She pops in earbuds and begins to run across her picturesque urban paradise underneath a beautiful blue sky. Guys with huge lumberjack beards and women dressed like 80s breakdancers all brunch and vape and walk shelter dogs and have two loud conversations like this. This new cleanse is super bomb. I can eat anything I want to between 1.40 and 1.55 a.m., 
The rest of the day, I just inhale a series of steams. I'm just so much more present since I deleted Twitter and Facebook from my phone. It's given me more time to just exist, you know? You guys, documentaries. I cannot get enough freaking documentaries right now. Have you seen the one about food? Bubble from Maximum Fun, and hopefully we've got more of that coming soon on the podcast hour. The Teacher's Pet is an Australian true crime series that centres on the disappearance and suspected murder of Sydney woman Lynn Dawson in 1982. The show's uncovered new evidence and witnesses the events leading up to her disappearance. And although this 36-year-old cold case remains unsolved, the investigation has led the New South Wales Police to look into historic claims of sexual abuse by teachers at a local high school. Made by news and media company The Australian and hosted by its national chief correspondent Hedley Thomas, the show's also proving to be a big commercial success, having just passed 4 million downloads and been number one of the iTunes charts in Australia in just about every week since it launched in May. Here's part of episode three of The Teacher's Pet, where Hedley Thomas manages to get the chief suspect in the case on the phone. <laughs> Lynette Dawson was reported missing by her husband, former Newtown Jets rugby league star Chris Dawson. He said I was going to get a hitman to kill Lynn and he rang me and said Lynn's gone, she isn't coming back. I just want justice and I'd love her little girls to know she didn't leave them. This is Weekend Sunrise with Monique Wright and Basil Zemplis. The case which has gone very cold, which has been thrust back into the spotlight by a major media investigation. In January 1982, mother of two, Lynette Dawson, went missing from Sydney's northern beaches. Her husband, Chris, a star rugby league player and physical education teacher, was the prime suspect but was never charged. He waited six weeks to report her disappearance to police, but took just two days to move his lover, a 16-year-old student, into the family home. So bizarre, isn't it? Renee Sims will bring you in. Uh, Renee, you're the daughter of Lynette's brother, Greg. Does the family believe that Chris Dawson murdered Lynn? Yeah, they do. Yep. Public interest in this cold case has grown since the release of the first two episodes of The Teacher's Pet. And do you hope, do you suspect, do you think you will get closure to this? Will you get the definitive answer that the family is searching I for? I think we're all very much hoping that that will be the case. Renee, we just heard he lives on the Sunshine Coast. There's every chance Chris Dawson is watching this right now. Yeah. If he is, what would you say to him? Just do what, what's right. Let us know where she is. That's it. Mm. Headley, where are we at with this? Where is Chris Dawson now? Hi, Chris speaking. One breakthrough can crack this cold case and deliver justice over the probable murder of Lynn Dawson 36 years ago. A confession by Lynn's alleged killer, her husband, Chris Dawson, would solve it in a heartbeat. Oh, g'day, Chris. My name's Hedley Thomas. Uh, I'm a journalist. Oh, Hedley, I know, I know of you, yes. Chris, his twin brother, Paul, and others in the clannish Dawson family have known about some of the angles I've been pursuing these past six months of investigation. Some of the people I've been to for information, background talks and recorded interviews have let Chris know. Chris sounded unperturbed when he answered my call. He lives in a modern beachside house a short drive south of Noosa on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. 
Chris, I'd really like to have a chat to you and your views on this. Billy, um, I've spoken to journalists before, and articles and television shows have been coming out and have not been fair in my um, interpretation of what I've said. Totally changed everything I have said. Before going on, let's restate some baseline facts. Joanne Curtis was 16 and attending Cromer High School on Sydney's northern beaches when her sports teacher introduced the student to his home as a babysitter. His obvious affection for Joanne, a girl half his age, quickly grew into an obsessive infatuation. Their intense sexual relationship from the second half of 1980 was well known at school. The teachers, the students, and even some of the parents knew all about it. The relationship was somehow hidden from Chris's wife, Lynn, despite Joanne's regular sleepovers as babysitter at the Dawson House at Bayview, her nude swims with Chris in the family pool, and long driving lessons in his car. And when Lynn suddenly vanished after 12 years of marriage and the birth of two girls, Joanne moved straight into the family home at Bayview. Joanne started sleeping on Lynn's side of the bed two days after Lynn's disappearance. But there has been no trace of Lynn Dawson, no sign of life, ever since. Thirty-six years later, Chris enjoys walking from his house to the nearby sand and surf. He lives comfortably about 1,000 kilometres north of Sydney's northern beaches and Cromer High. Chris and his third wife recently went to Fiji to celebrate a significant wedding anniversary. I'm sorry, I, I've lost all my faith in journalism. So, um, I mean, the one thing... So, 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 so sorry, my, my answer is, is no, I, I won't be speaking to you, sorry. Chris has only done one interview about the case. The scoop belonged to Cara Lawrence, a crime reporter with Sydney's leading newspaper, The Daily Telegraph. Cara spoke to Chris in 2003, a few months after a coroner's finding that Chris had murdered Lynn because he wanted it all, Joanne and the house at Bayview, and his children. The same powerful finding was delivered two years earlier by another coroner who closely examined the detailed brief of police evidence. Cara's report after her interview with Chris was perfectly balanced and straight. The headline was, I did not kill my wife. At the time, Chris was on leave, having been suspended from his job as a teacher at a Catholic all-girls school, St Ursula's, in the Queensland town of Yapoon. He looks reflective in the accompanying photograph. Chris told Kara, I've thought of suicide, but I've got the most beautiful family I would ever want, and I know that if I did that, people would just say, he's guilty. I've made mistakes at the time, but I don't know how that comes to murdering somebody. I've got no reason to believe she's not alive though I can't understand why she didn't contact her family. That was 15 years ago, and Chris has kept his head down since. The former star footballer for the Newtown Jets is still the only suspect for homicide cops in Sydney. But Chris won't be confessing to a crime he insists that he didn't commit. After the findings of both coroners, the files were sent to the New South Wales Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. And on both occasions, the DPP balked and refused to put the case in front of a jury. I've been looking at legal documents, diary entries, and talking to witnesses about what appears to be the DPP's misunderstanding of some really significant aspects of the case. 
It suggests that at least some of the DPP's reasons for not prosecuting Chris Dawson were based on a false premise about key facts. These will be described in detail in a future episode. Lynn's family tell me they see the DPP as Chris Dawson's ally. And it seems to be whatever he says has been accepted as fact by the DPP. I followed up with a lengthy note. I offered Chris an unedited interview in which he could put all of his side of the story. The same offer was made to his twin brother, Paul Dawson, but they haven't replied. The offers remain open. I wrote to their older brother, the solicitor in the Dawson family, Peter Dawson, who had previously spoken on behalf of the twins. Peter hasn't replied either. Rebecca Hazel, Joanne Curtis's friend from the Northern Beaches, got more when she wrote to Peter Dawson to ask for an interview. Peter still practices as a solicitor in Sydney's West, and he responded with a curt email. This isn't his voice, but these are his words from the email. There is no story or book in Lynette Dawson's decision to leave her husband and children. That is a decision made freely and consciously by many women, including Lynette. Your interest in the matter can only be generated by the periodic media regurgitation of unsubstantiated and unsustainable allegations against Chris Dawson. Those allegations were made in the course of the incompetent, expensive and totally unnecessary forensic investigation of Lynette's decision and have already caused great distress to Lynette's daughters and to the entire Dawson family. We therefore have no interest whatsoever in assisting you to perpetuate the myth that there is anything interesting at all about Lynette's decision. Some of episode three of The Teacher's Pet. You can find more information about how to listen to the rest of it and subscribe at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. And thanks to Hedley Thomas, Kelly Southam and Slade Gibson at The Australian for their help in sharing that with you. Celebrity chat shows don't always give you many major insights into what makes the biggest stars tick. But when you throw in some food, have some famous mates and get your mum to do the cooking, we might find out a whole lot more about them. Jessie Ware's an English singer and songwriter and in her show Table Manners, her mum Lenny cooks up a storm for a selection of invited guests, including Ed Sheeran, TV personality Alan Carr and chef Yotam Ottolenghi. This is from the very first episode back in November, when the English singer Sam Smith popped round for dinner. And although you get the feeling that the show is still finding its feet, the mix of food, friends and family does make for a natural-sounding chat that's full of unguarded moments and some surprising revelations that you just would never hear on the red carpet or in a TV interview show. Will you tell Sam what's on the menu tonight? I did turkey meatballs. Mm. Well, that that, no, that that is not exciting, Sam. But it was because we were trying like to do it lean. Yeah. I like turkey. Yeah, okay, turkey. Fine. But actually, okay, fine. They're, they're really very light, and they're almost as good as the Greek ones that we, you, the sousoulakia. You know, the ones mm. that are very very light. So they, and you make them, and you put parmesan inside. So they do taste nice. I hope. Beautiful. So, so, so we did get some. Nice. We did get you cauliflower rice and courgette, but I'm Let's taking. Let's go rice. Okay, fine. Thank you. 
I thought Mexico was in Europe <laughs> until last year. I got, in a, I got a plane with my manager and um, he said, and I didn't have any hand luggage. And he was like, why have you not got any hand luggage? And I was like, it's just like a two hour plane journey to Mexico. And he was like, no, Sam. <laughs> Where do you think Mexico is? And I thought Mexico was like near Germany. Because if you, look, if you look at pictures, it looks very Spanish. Not that Spain is near Germany, but it looks very Spanish and everyone yeah. speaks Spanish. And I just didn't realize it was so far away. So, <laughs> had you packed correctly? Nope. <laughs> Why are you in Mexico on a holiday? No, just gigs. Got a shock of my life. It's a 12, 12 hour plane journey. Very different to Spain and Germany. I would like yeah. to have taken the baby to synagogue this Thursday. I've never been to a synagogue. Sukkot's gone. It's Simkastara now. With the Since flags. Did you get so bloody Jewish? I'm not so Jewish, but the <laughs> children have the flags and they give them sweets and they wave the flags. Well, Mum, I'm relying on you to educate my child. Well, if you lived in South London, we'd be all right. Well, there we oh, go. Nice. This is like, yeah, yeah, okay. Can I whip cream with a hand blender? I've got one of those bloody things. I just can't find them. <laughs> Hold on, Mum. Mum, we need whipped cream. This is going to be an issue. Have you got a whisk? I don't mind having non-whipped no, cream. No, I mind. How do you whip cream? Have you got ice cream as well? So this is an absolute mess, Mum. Oh, hold on, hold on. I found a whisk. Okay, well that could take 20 minutes. Oh, hold on, no. I've got a that could whisk. take 20 minutes. Oh my God, look at that whisk. Should I just try and do it for a bit? Yeah. I mean, how long is it going to take? A little while, darling. Think of those arm muscles, babe. No, haven't been able to work out for ages. I just have one Pete Sampras, like, bloody bicep. <laughs> oh, no, Mum, it's already whipping. Good. Whip, oh, my God, I'm incredible. Whip it good. Into Was shape. It real? Oh, it's not too have late. I just, I've, I've overdone it. How can How I even do, do that? Oh, my God, that's whipped so quickly. No, <laughs> We froze our guinea pigs by accident when we were kids. What? How did you freeze We left them in the garage and they froze. <gasps> I know, but we thought well, the, we thought the garage was hard. warm, yeah. <gasps> and we put like padding and everything there, but they, they died. Oh my God. We had nightmares, kids with pets. We had like the, all our hamsters got eaten by oh, the yeah. cat. The gerbil, yeah. Oh. Jar Jar Binks was my first hamster, just got mutilated. Oh, sorry, can you please just because? Oh God. No, it's just because I feel like not enough people know how. Well, I mean, a lot of people know you're funny, but like. <laughs> I've never no. It's gonna be really embarrassing for you, but I don't care. Do your impersonation that I love you to do. Colin. Yeah. It's gonna sound weird with a cold. No, it's gonna sound <laughs> amazing. You stupid fat hobbit. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? You ruined it. My process. <laughs> Is it good? So good. Very good. My process. <laughs> now you've got the roll. <laughs> so good. I'm not gonna tell. We had the best Glastonbury of our lives, me just basically making him repeat that till six o'clock in the That's morning. That's my memory of you, babe, you know. I've, I've never, I have to tell Pissing this. in a bush together. Oh my gosh. Remember that? When you were pissed, you were squatting in the bush at Glastonbury. Babe, I was you were dead. pissing right by me, Oh dog. my God. But the, my favourite. Your daughter. I don't know if you know this, but the first time I ever met Jesse, I was working in a bar in London and I took two days off of work to go to Bestival to perform with Is Disclosure for the first time. Oh, God, I've done the wrong story then. No. Is that we met at Best of First time we ever met. And I, and I was on the side of the stage, and I'd taken a day off work, and I was shitting myself because I'd never performed in front of anyone before, and I had to sing Latch. And sing with, like, 
disclosure, and I wasn't familiar with dance music. I remember watching YouTube videos of you performing in Ibiza with Annie Mac before I'd even met you, just trying to gauge like how I would perform. Oh, shut up! And I, and I stood side of stage in the best of all in the big top ten, and I watched you do your set, and then. I, my, fav- my first memory of Jessie is she met me before and she was like, how are you? So and you were very you sweet. No, no, before I went on, in festival, we I met outside. We met at Plan B on the side of the stage. No, Shit, that was I'm after. a terrible friend. Okay, go on. And then I was performing Latch and my, something was wrong with my in-ears and I panicked because I'd never performed with in-ears before and I turned to my right and you were on the side of the stage and you ran around the back of the stage to the sound desk and you were helping me with my sound. And we'd only just met, and you literally saved me. The people's princess, they called me. You're just such a beautiful person. Oh, babe, no, that, I, I was saying that my intro, well, I got the wrong bloody day. I thought we met that at after, um, yeah. Plan B. Plan when the, uh, the, oh, okay. But I just remember it was basically how our romance started, that we would dance and vogue on the side of the stage oh to disclose. Yes. We knew the set off by heart. Yeah. Be like, something is oh boiling. Oh my God, yeah, it's And incredible. then it'd be like, bit into, when a fire starts to burn. Vogue. Yeah, and it just, it was so much fun. It was so, back then it was, there was an excitement, wasn't there? And there was there, an innocence all, about yeah, it. Yeah, really was. There was a real scene and it was just and None like, of us knew what we were doing. Oh, wow. You don't have to have all of it. But um, yes, I do. Okay, oh. good. Um, oh, thank you. Okay, sorry, it's a bit too much to do. Mum, Mum, announce, please announce what we're eating. Okay, so there's meringues mm. with cream. Over with another set batch of over with Did cream. you make the meringue? No, I didn't. Oh my. No, God. but they're not, <laughs> they're, not, they're not shop so my, my friend Anne's Sweeney makes the best meringues. So you basically made them? Yeah. John Berry's? Yeah, okay. that's enough then. Okay. Oh, yeah. I never, I'm never mad about summer fruits. Oh, I do. I, quite I don't like really them. like fruit. I like them with, I like them with <laughs> yogurt. That leads me to my next question. What is your comfort food? What's your go-to comfort food? Crunchy peanut butter with jam on a cinnamon bagel with loads of butter, toasted, with a glass of milk. Oh, sweet. Oh, That's a nice sweet. one. Yeah. And why, why is that? Does it take you back to your childhood? Yeah, my grandma used to... My grandma was the reason why I got fat. She used to feed me up. My mum and dad would be like, you need to stop eating when I was like 13 because I was getting huge. <laughs> and grandma would be like, he's young, he's growing, let him eat. And they, she just, my parents were really strict, so they were like, he can't eat bad food. And I have a very fond memory of my grandma waking me up at three in the morning um, <laughs> in my summer holidays and taking me downstairs and just sitting with me on the kitchen bench, just feeding me peanut butter <laughs> and jam. <laughs> On a spoon. <laughs> I love her. Yeah, she was amazing. Which grandma was it? Your mum's mum? It's my mum's mum, yeah. She was incredible. Incredible. Table Manners with Jessie Ware featuring Sam Smith. And thanks to Jessie Ware, Becky Voice and Alice Williams for sharing that. And that's about all from the podcast hour for now. Just a reminder, you've been listening to Caliphate, The Teacher's Pet, The Kitchen Sisters and Table Manners. And please let us have your listening recommendations at pods at radionz.co.nz. On Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour, and I'll try and feature them in future shows. For now, from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. 
Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.